As we begin this sermon series, Courageous Christianity, I want to introduce you to a man who was one of the icons of the civil rights movements in the 1950s and 1960s. This man was born uh, on a Mississippi cotton plantation in 1930. When he was just seven months old, his mother passed away from nutrition deficiency. His name is John Perkins. And when he was 17 years of age, his older brother, his big brother, who was a World War II vet, was gunned down by the town marshal in the community that they lived in, uh, in Mississippi. As a civil rights activist, a decade later, Perkins was jailed and nearly beaten to death by law enforcement officers. He was tortured without mercy, including having a fork shoved up his nose and a fork shoved down his throat. And then, in a final act of humiliation, was made to mop up his own blood from the county jailhouse floor. All because he desired justice for all people, especially colored people. John Perkins truly knew and has known injustice in his lifetime. John Perkins says, the easiest thing in the world for me to do would have been to answer hate with hate, racism with racism. But God had another plan for my life, a plan of redemption where God saved me from my sin, from a life of hatred and resentment to a life of amazing grace. It was one of his sons who actually invited John to go to church when his son was quite young and his father went and there he received Christ and went on to become a pastor. Reverend Perkins and his wife, VMA, of over 60 years, would spend the bulk of their adult lives confronting injustice, working for civil rights, striving for multi-ethnic uh, reconciliation, working hard for community development, and to build good relationships between urban communities and law enforcement and education systems. And they also, at the same time, taught the gospel and conducted holistic ministry where they cared for the physical, emotional, and the spiritual needs of people. One example of their ministry is in the early years, VMA started a child care slash preschool in her home that would later spread across the United States of America and would become known as Head Start. Through 60 years of working for justice, Pastor John Perkins offers four admonishments to the next generation of justice seekers. Number one, begin with God. God is bigger than we can imagine. We have to align ourselves with his purposes and his will, his mission to bring forgiveness and love, he says, to everyone on earth. The problem of injustice is a God-sized problem. So if we don't start with God, he says, Whatever we will be seeking won't be justice. Number two, be one in Christ. Christians need to pull together. Black, white, brown, people of all ethnicities, rich and poor. In Christ, he says, we are all one family. In fact, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 for the oneness of the church so that the world would know who Jesus is. If we allow any foothold of tribalism in, our unity, he believes, will be in jeopardy. And we will not be promoting God's 
justice. Number three, he says, preach the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is multicultural, multi-ethnic good news. In Jesus, we are one race, the human race, one people, the body of Christ, the church. We have got to stop playing, he says, the race game. It's Jesus alone who can break down the barriers of prejudice, bias, and hate that we all wrestle with. And there's no power greater than God's love expressed in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. If we replace the gospel with man-made political agendas, we will not be doing biblical justice. Number four, he says, teach the truth. Speak the truth. Tell the truth. Without the truth, there can be no justice. Without the truth, there can be no biblical justice. So what is the ultimate standard of truth? Is it the internet? Is that where we find our standard of truth? Is it what the news media reports? Is it what friends and family tell us? Is it what the latest survey says? Is it what pop culture says? Hollywood stars and sports celebrities and politicians and presidents say? Is it how we feel about something? No. God's word is our standard of truth. Rightly divided and rightly interpreted. God's word is going to be our guide in this sermon series for justice. Not what our culture calls justice. And by the way... You know you cannot have culture without cult. Think about that for a moment. You cannot have any culture anywhere in the world without cult. Something is believed. Some narrative is promoted. Some story is being told. Some belief system is being advanced. And instead of cult, the cult of culture, we in the sermon series are going to be standing on the Word of God. Ephesians 4.15 admonishes us to speak the truth in love. And that's what we're committing ourselves to do in this sermon series. For instance, we will be telling the truth about incarceration in our nation that import, Im, Im, imposes harsher and longer prison sentences on minorities than upon many whites some of which is simply related to class. Some is related to privilege, which comes because some people can afford high-powered attorneys versus those that are simply have to entrust their future to public defenders. Some is simply tied to a person's skin color. We're also going to tell the truth about sentencing guidelines. And historically in America, they have been stricter and more often conform to the letter of the law for people of color than for the majority culture. And as truth tellers though, we must also say that since the civil rights movements in the 1960s and the Civil Rights Act signed into law by the late President Lyndon B. Johnson, that this isn't all the culprit of white privilege. For example, 
the difference in convictions and sentencing rates in, in rock cocaine versus the use of powdered cocaine since the early 1990s when President Clinton signed those sentencing guidelines into law, that is clearly racist. And it needs to be changed. Our government has languished long enough and not changing those sentencing guidelines. Poor blacks and other minorities who were the higher users of rock cocaine and have been historically have gotten stiffer sentences than many wealthier whites who were caught using the more expensive powdered cocaine. Senator Joe Biden, who's now our president, along with many of his fellow Democrats and Republicans, voted these standards into law, these clearly racist standards. But for the sake of truth-telling, these sentencing guidelines were pushed by the Black Congressional Congress, who were deeply concerned with black communities in the 1980s, whose streets were flowing with the blood of black people because of the use and abuse of drugs, specifically rock cocaine. And it was the black congressional congress desiring to clean up the streets and make our city safer, saving lives, including many innocent lives, who pushed for stricter guidelines and sentencing guidelines as a deterrent to this vile behavior. So we can't go around saying it's white privilege that created this. Knowing the truth matters, especially when it comes to discussing justice. You know, when Alexander Solzhenitsyn was being exiled to the West on February 12, 1974, by the Russian government of his homeland, his final message to the Russian people was, live not by lies. You may not be able to change the culture, but you do not have to be its loyal subject. He then listed a number of things that they should do to not live by lies. Number one, do not write, affirm, or distribute anything that distorts the truth. Number two, do not participate in meetings where no one is allowed to speak the truth. Number three, refuse to participate in collective action unless the truth is being told. Number four, do not support journalism or organizations which intentionally hide or distort the facts. That's someone who is staring down the barrel of communism and socialism that had devastated his loved homeland. Folks, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And God's Word is the truth. And any truth that exists anywhere on this planet is all God's truth. Now we got to tell the truth about the evil one. Satan, the devil, the liar, whom the Bible calls the father of lies. And we want all of you to know, with all that has just been said, that we're committed in this sermon series to following the Bible and telling the truth, even if the truth makes us uncomfortable, 
even if it makes us squirm in our seats a little bit. So are we ready to begin with God, to be one in Christ, and to tell? Here's the first thing we all need to know. All people are made in the image of God. Well, if that's true, you might ask, well, how did we end up with all of these different races of people if everybody's made in God's image, if everybody's made like God? How do we have all these races on the planet? Well, let me say this. Race is a social construct based upon a set of customs and practices that are not immutable laws of nature. Immutable meaning unchanging. So race is a cultural and social invention to basically create a caste system where someone is perceived as superior and someone else is inferior or subordinate. And that simply, folks, is the history of the world since the fall came into the world. That's the facts. Now, the Bible was written by 40 different authors over a 1,600-year period of time, authors from various cultures and contexts, so they do not speak of race in the same terms that we do in the 21st century as Americans. When the Bible speaks of race, it does so in two different ways. One, in terms of our creation as human beings, the human race. In fact, in some English translations of the Bible, in some of the accounts that use the word Adam, which is Adam for us, uh, in the Hebrew language, Adam, and it's generally translated as man or mankind, it's translated in many English Bibles as the human race. Job 28, 28 is an example of this. It says, La Amar, La Adam, as that verse begins in Hebrew. And he said to literally Adam or man, mankind. But it's saying here, and it's said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Race in this verse, human race, refers to all human beings without exception. It's talking to humanity. And wisdom here is seen as the fear of the Lord. And wisdom is something the wisdom of God is available to every human being, regardless of ethnicity, skin color, or class. That's what the verse is saying. And the Bible also uses the term race to indicate the difference between those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and people out there who do not believe in Jesus as the Messiah or Savior or Lord of their lives. And we read that earlier. Diane just read it for us. But you have to understand... In the earlier translations of this, it would say 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a chosen genos in the Greek language. That's where we get the word genealogy from. It's where we, we, uh, we know the word race or the word nation comes from. The, this genos does not refer to a person's skin color or other physical features. The word simply means here people who are part of God's new holy nation. The church through faith in Jesus Christ. And although the Bible does not talk about race in the way we commonly refer to it in our world today, 
It, de it d does detail how people should relate to one another across ethnic and cultural differences. In the Old Testament, many different people groups are spoken of and named as such, as different people groups. In the New Testament, at Pentecost, the apostles spoke, and when the Holy Spirit came down upon them, they spoke in the languages of 15 different people groups that were there, from Parthians and Medes all the way to Cretans and Arabs. And when the Bible describes the different people groups of the world, it frequently talks in the language that we refer to as ethnicity rather than race. And personally, i got to tell you this. This is a conviction I've had for a long time. I do not use the language of race because that is a man-made human term. That is a social construct to say somebody's superior and somebody's inferior. That is not a biblical term unless we're talking about all of humanity as the human race, not as somebody being above someone else. The Bible uses the terminology of nations, of ethnos, of peoples, of people groups, of tongue and tribe. In other words, ethnicity and that is, of the word ethnicity. And that's personally where I just camp. I talk about different ethnicities, different ethnic groups. I personally do not try to use the word race ever at all. And by the way, the term ethnicity is flexible enough to encompass language, nations of origin, and religion, which is why I am certain that the Bible centers there. All people are made in the image of God, which is why the Bible from Genesis to Revelation presents to us a portrait of ethnic diversity. The Old Testament in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind, Adam, the human race, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In God's likeness, everybody. Now, then sin enters the world. And we know that from Genesis chapter 3. We know the account. And then in verse 15, uh, when the fall occurs, we get this promise. Theologians like to refer to this as the proto-evangelion, the very first gospel, the words of redemption that come here. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now the point I want you to understand here is that there's no indication that this future deliverance, this future salvation for Eve's offspring was going to be applied differently to any particular ethnic group. It doesn't give, it doesn't give us that. It's her offspring, period. Every offspring of Eve from the very beginning till now all has this same deliverance. And then look at chapter 3, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. 
It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out this, you know, this first uh, proto-evangelion, this words of redemption and this deliverance and salvation was for all her offspring. Clearly from the beginning, the promise of salvation would be open to all ethnic groups. Now let's jump ahead to the father of our faith, to Abraham, the one God called to leave his own land and go to this foreign land. And it says in chapter 12 of Genesis 1 through 3, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. These verses are international in scope. They are inter-ethnic in scope. All the peoples of the earth were going to be blessed through this promise that started with this person named Abram. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it says, In the last days the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And you know when they translate that into the, uh, the uh, Septuagint, which was the Greek language just years before Jesus? All the nations are all the peoples. They're all the ethnos. You know, there are numerous places where both the Psalms and the prophets say something similar to what I've just shared with you right here. Clearly in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, God's plan for salvation is built upon the presumption of human equality and dignity and assures a multi-ethnic character of the people of God. Now, in the New Testament, we see the same message, and I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. There we have the account of a godly, devout, righteous man who's been serving at the temple his whole life, and he's been longing to see God's Messiah. And then Joseph and Mary, this poor family, shows up with their poor, meager offering to dedicate their newborn son, their firstborn son, Jesus to the Lord. And we read the account in Luke 2, verses 28 through 32. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, all ethnos, all people, a light for revelation to Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. All nations, all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And then one of Jesus' resurrection appearances, he gave the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, which says what? Go and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnos, Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always on that mission, on that task, even until the very end of the age. Another resurrection appearance before the ascension. 
Jesus gave the words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he was instructing them to go to Jerusalem and stay there and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And he said, what? But you will be the second great commission there. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. The good news of the gospel of salvation in Christ is that it was never simply intended for Jewish people. It was intended for a multi-ethnic community of worshipers. And you know when Jesus was teaching about the end times in Matthew 24, verse 14, he said this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, Greek language, I'm not making this up here, folks, to the ethnos, the people of the world, and then the end will come. You want to know when the end times are coming? When the good news of Jesus is proclaimed throughout the entire world. And Revelation 7, 9 and 10 tells us what the end is going to look like. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every nation. Again, every ethnos, every tribe, every people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God! who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, God has planned for an ethnically diverse church. Dr. Jamar Tisby, who happens to be a, a black professor at Notre Dame University, says this, This heter heterogeneity is not a mistake or a backup plan. Diversity is God's plan A for the church. And in order to fight racism, those who advocate for justice must become aware of the scope of God's deliverance and, it's all, and His all-encompassing uh, love for all people. God's plan is for a multi-ethnic church. From Genesis to Revelations, we see the portrait of this ethnic diversity. And I want you to know that science even confirms what the Bible teaches, that we are made in the image of God. See, what our society likes to call race is merely an indication of the amount of melanin in one's skin. Over 99.9% .9 of our DNA is identical from one person to the next. Take any person on this planet, and you're 99.9% exactly like that person. Your cells function just like that person's cells function. Your biological functions are just like their functions. Okay? 99.9% the same. And you know what this points to? It points to the same creator, God. And it points to the exact same model, the plan, and putting the model together. And what's the model? The image of God, the likeness of God. Physicist Bicardo Sabatini explained it this way. 
He said if we printed our entire genetic code out on paper, legal paper, eight and a half by 11 inch sheets of paper, if you did that, your genetic code, my genetic code, would require 262,000 pages. And you know how many of those would be different from other people on this planet? 500 of those 262,000 pages. Skin color, who has more melanin in their skin versus others? Eye color, hair color, are we have different body types? Endomorph, ectomorph, mesomorph, don't ask me to go back to my human anatomy, I can't remember the differences, but some have longer legs and shorter torsos and some have longer waists and shorter legs and, and some are bigger on the up, you know, the, their bigger upper body and tiny little legs. I used to just refer to that as the Canadian outhouse, you know. They got these big tops and the bottom looks like it's ready to collapse. And that's how I remembered it from anatomy uh, in my days. Who has more fast twitch fibers in their body than slow twitch fibers? You know, who has proclivities to certain diseases or cancers? That's the whole 500 pages. These minor biological variances do not set inherent limits on intelligence, cultural creativity, or social location. Those criteria are all man-made problems. Sadly, race in America has been largely defined in terms of physical appearance, hair texture, body features, nose and cheeks and lip shape, and the essential feature, of course, is always skin color. And although, human, although race is a human construct, its effects are very real, as it can affect where a person lives, and it can affect a person's actual lifespan. It can affect their earning potential in many respects, even their quality of life. And from a biblical point of view, which means from the vantage point of biblical justice, as people who are made in the image of God. Every single human being deserves equal treatment. Every person deserves equal rights. Everyone should be granted equal opportunities in life. And included in that equal opportunity is the right to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then to be able in Christ Jesus, to pursue the abundant life, a life of liberty and happiness to the glory of God. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, this morning as we launch into this uh, very timely matter, one that's even contentious, Lord, in our culture, uh, we want to begin with you, God. We know this is a God-sized problem. Lord, we want to um, be one in Christ, not talking about differences, but oneness. In fact, as people who are so like every other human being on the planet, because our bodies function the same and they, they have the same resistances uh, and the same uh, abilities and capacities, Lord, it's amazing to think how we're so fearfully and wonderfully made. So we don't want to divide over those differences that are small and inconsequential. We want to be one in Christ. And Lord, we want to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And we want to tell the truth. Because God, you are truth. And uh, we're your ambassadors on this, on this planet. 
So that means in part that we have to be truth tellers. God, I pray that all of our hearts and minds are going to be, continue to be open to what you have to teach us during this time. But thank you, God, today for the important reminder that your church is to be an ethnically diverse church, that all people are made in your image. You are the author, the creator, and the designer. And we praise you for all this in Jesus' name.